You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. In Matthew Stover's novel, Star Wars, Episode 3, Emperor Palpatine, an evil character, and Anakin Skywalker, not quite yet an evil character, have a conversation regarding revenge. And when Anakin reflects on some actions he has taken recently as wrong, Palpatine reassures him. He says, Revenge is the foundation of justice. Justice began with revenge. And revenge is still the only justice some beings can ever hope for. Well, these words may sound preposterous to us, but isn't this the understanding of justice that is quite common in our world? That vigil anti-justice that has those undertones of revenge and is expressed in the arts, from the pages of comic books to classic literature to blockbuster movies. Clear winners and losers That moment when the enemy is defeated, even humiliated or killed. And sometimes within us, we see this as a cathartic moment. Why? Because these moments echo on grand scale a lot of our everyday experience. We all can name times when we have suffered unfairness at the hands of another. And sometimes these moments we get over rather quickly in a matter of minutes or days. But sometimes injuries fester a lifetime. Especially those that involve betrayal or harm or injustice. And from an early age, we are quick to perceive those Injustices with outcries such as, no fair. No fair when our sibling gets what we perceive to be the bigger piece of cake. My kids have a kindergarten teacher who has this wonderful phrase that he answers to no fair. That's the way of the world. We've taken to that a little bit in our household. But really, consider how you feel, that no-fair cry that comes up when your property is stolen, when you see a co-worker advance in the world, perhaps by lying, or more painfully, when a spouse breaks the marriage vows you made. We rightly desire justice. And that desire, when unchecked and unmet, can cripple us. It can take over our lives and consume us. And the truth is, in this world, it's quite common for injustice to happen. And even in those instances when we find something that feels like retribution, it doesn't often heal what we need healed. We need more. I recently read the story of Immaculate Ilabagiza, It's a story of a Rwandan woman who survived the genocide of 1994, where over a million Rwandans were murdered 
in a hundred days at the hands of people who had been their neighbors, their co-workers, their schoolmates, and their friends. Immaculate herself lost her parents and two of her brothers. And she survived that genocide because she had been hidden by a pastor in a tiny three-by-four-foot bathroom with seven other women for 90 days. And during that time, she was constantly being hunted, even called out by name by someone who had been a friend of her family who was now wanting to kill her. And she waited in that bathroom in silence and stillness. And as she waited, she wrestled with good and evil, injustice and revenge, anger, hatred, retribution. Immaculate contemplated what the moment of her certain death would be like. And she wrestled in prayer with God. Asking God to open her heart. And she pleaded with God to show her how to cast off this hatred she had for her enemies. Hatred that crushed her. And time and time again, she asked God to release her from her anger. And she did survive. And one day she found herself before an imprisoned man who had hunted her like a dog. The man that was responsible for the death of her mother and one of her brothers. The tables now turned. And in that moment, she had to decide how would she respond? How would she find justice, satisfaction, retribution, healing, and peace? Well, David, in our passage from 1 Samuel, is in a similar place. David, who is the next anointed king of Israel, is forced into exile because King Saul is trying to take his life. King Saul, the man whose roof he had lived under, whom he had fought battles for, whom he had soothed with song, who was like a father to him. Saul is now fixated on tracking down David, and he's come close a couple of times to killing him. As Saul feels that kingly reign slipping from his hands, his response is desperation and violence. And the scene we are encountering today reaches a critical point, where the hunted finds the hunter delivered into his hands, and David must make a decision. Well, let me set the scene for us. Saul has been informed that David is in the wilderness in Engedi. And so Saul chooses 3,000 of his best soldiers to come and look for David. And he eventually needs to relieve himself, and so he finds a cave in which to do so. The cave which happens to be the very cave where David is hiding with his men. Delicately put, Saul is in a highly vulnerable state. David's men are quick to observe this and they tell him, this is it. 
This is the moment that has been promised to you, David. Your enemy has been given to you. Go for it. David has to think fast. He clearly could lose face or at least his leadership edge in this situation. After all, these men have sworn their allegiance to him. They're living as desert outcasts, fleeing from Saul. So David sneaks up on Saul, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. And then he feels bad for having done so. He is stricken to the heart that he might even think of raising his hand against Saul, God's anointed king. And so he scolds his men and forbids further attack on Saul. And Saul leaves the cave, and David is ready to make his next move. And that's where we'll pick up our text for the, today. So I invite you to bring, pick up your Bible or grab a pew Bible, and we'll hit 1 Samuel chapter 24. And as you're able, please stand. And we'll begin with verse 8. And read through verse 15. Afterwards, David rose up and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to do you harm? This very day your eyes have seen the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not raise my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand. For by the fact that I can cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the ancient proverb says, out of the wicked comes forward wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord therefore be judged and be sentenced between me and you. May he see to it and plead my cause, and vindicate me against you. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive what your spirit would say to us this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Take a seat. Well, this is a critical point in David's life. A few things happen. First, David sees what he is capable of. 
he is tempted to defend himself with force, to take advantage of a situation, to meet Saul's aggression with aggression, to take power and take hold of what his men would have seen his God-given, even a God-ordained right. Second, he faces a choice. On whom will he depend? Who will he trust? Will he have confidence in God's timing? Will he honor God's anointing? Remember, both Saul and David were anointed by Samuel. Both were God's choice. Will David remember what being chosen is all about? Will he see that righteousness conferred by God in being chosen? And finally, David's faced with the question, what is real power? Does he have it? And how is that power expressed? Is there something more to power than meets the eye? We have read that David is called a man after God's own heart. And so, what do we see about God in this moment? What is revealed to us about God in David's story? Well, simply this, and this is the punchline. God is David's defender. God is David's defender. And that is what empowers David to act. David is defended by God. And so he can defer the judgment to God. And that's what gives him his freedom. David trusts God as his ultimate defender. And so David is defended so his hand can be restrained towards Saul. David is defended to see righteousness. And David is defended to have a free heart to love. And it is the very fact that David is defended that allows him to drop his defenses. So let's flesh this out a little bit more. David is in good hands. He is freed because of this. And he can trust that God indeed is at work. Reconciling it all. God is the ultimate reconciler. And so he's defended in such a way that he doesn't have to worry about judgment or vengeance. He doesn't have to take it into his own hands. Now, mind you, and make no mistake, David is shrewd. He presents the proof that contrary to Saul's belief, David has not been plotting against Saul. And so in the shrewdness, David clears his name. But David has trust in God. And he trusts that God is the judge, not him. And so his hand can be restrained. Secondly, David is defended to see God's righteousness. David sees the sovereignty of God and places his confidence in God's hand. David respects the anointing of God for both of them. He sees that Saul, just like him, is chosen. 
And it's because of this divine authority that David does what he does. He sees Saul as God's own too, despite his actions. He sees that Saul has his own story. And David trusts that God will bring about what will be. And because of this trust, he can be patient in affliction. David is trusting that God is steadily working out God's purpose. And he doesn't need to take hold of the process or doubt it. And so David can look to honor God. And finally, David is defended. And because of that, he is free to extend a servant's heart towards Saul. He is free to offer his respect to Saul and Saul's office and to seek reconciliation. And it's that desire that has him come from this cave and tenderly, passionately, and eloquently pursue peace. This is one of the longest speeches. It might be the longest speech David makes. His power is not exercised in violence but as a gift to Saul. David bows before him in deference. And this isn't what we expect of power. Reminds us of Jesus. Jesus himself blew away those profound expectations of power. He, just like David in the desert, was tempted around issues of power and how he might use it. Would he use power to provide for himself, to serve himself, to force or test the hand of God? But Jesus shows total trust and obedience in God, his heavenly Father. He, the Son of God, the one called the Son of David, later demonstrates the power of servitude as he kneels before his disciples and washes their feet. We heard it in the text that Lori read for us this morning. He shows his greatness as he serves his friends. And at that table, there is one he knows who sits who will betray him, Judas, one who will deny him, Peter, and he serves them anyway. Because Jesus knows his destiny, he knows his anointing, who he is, and so he's free to serve. Just as David knew that God held his future, and he was free then to serve and spare Saul. And Jesus, we know later, serves his friends, serves us in an ultimate act of servitude defending us and them against the power of sin and death and giving us ultimate freedom. Jesus is our defender. And because we have a defender, we are freed to be agents of love and reconciliation. After the Rwandan genocide was over, Immaculate found herself at a Rwandan jail. And God had healed her of the anxiety she had over what her family had endured. But she knew she had another step to take. And so at the jail, she was led by an official who had been a friend of her father, one she immediately recognized. The man was Felician, 
a businessman whose children she had played with in grade school. He was the one who had hunted her and called her by name when she was hiding in the pastor's house. And when Felician saw her, the color drained from his face, and he looked at the floor. And his captor yelled at him and said, Stand up and tell Immaculate why you murdered her family. But the man remained hunched and kneeling, too embarrassed to face her. He was emaciated, bruised, and broken. His once clear eyes were now filmed over, and he had open sores on his feet. Immaculate wept at his suffering, understanding that Felician had let evil direct his heart, and that evil had become a cancer to his soul. She was overwhelmed with pity, and the guard grabbed Felician by the collar and hauled him to his feet and demanded that he speak, and Felician is sobbing, and for a moment his eyes meet Immaculates. And in that moment, she reaches out and she touches his hand and she says, I forgive you. And she immediately notices that her heart is eased and Felician's shoulders drop. And then he's pulled away. Felician's brought to his, back to his cell and the guard comes back and he's furious with Immaculate. He had brought the prisoner to her for that moment of interrogation and humiliation. In his eyes, this was her moment to take her vengeance. And he asked her, why did she do what she did? And Immaculate replied, forgiveness is all I have to offer. Immaculate returned good for evil. She broke the cycle, and she could only do this powerful thing because the Spirit struck her heart, just like the Spirit of God was in the heart of David. A Spirit that allowed her to extend mercy. And that is what freed her from her potential prison of anger, from victimization. Her need for a defender was met in Jesus Christ. And that was her power. Power to love those who hated her and hunted her. To give the gift of forgiveness. A gift that was not only for her captor, but for herself. This is countercultural. But as we walk with Jesus, we discover that the laws of the culture don't often apply to our lives. Because with Jesus Christ, we are moving towards a new alignment. God realized lives. And because Immaculate was, had a God realized life, she was able to see all as God's children, to forgive and act with compassion. Now, this is not to say that we ignore the evil that confronts us. Remember, David confronted Saul and called out the wrong deed. A cycle is not broken by acceptance of evil, but it's broken by forgiveness that frees the victim from vengeance and enables a new future. And so as we consider this story at the cave in Engedi, there's an invitation for us. Did you hear one? 
An invitation to release our grasp, perhaps on believing that we get what is right, what is our right. To pray for that ability to trust a situation to God. To rest in that assurance that God is the ultimate purveyor of justice. God enables us to resist that power grab. To resist that chance to embarrass an opponent or to render a person less than chosen. It's God who empowers us to let reverence control our thoughts and actions. To trust, to be assured, to serve others and extend a hand of reconciliation. But I want to be clear. I know there are situations in our lives that are terribly painful. That may have you or someone you love taking refuge in a cave. Holding on for dear life. It may not be the time to step out. For, me, it may, for you it may be that all you need to know and to hear is that Jesus loves you. And Jesus is your defender. Or there may be some hurts in your past that you're recalling right now that you have no ability to reconcile. The people or persons that hurt you are gone. And so maybe the word for you today is to trust that the Holy Spirit is present even to the past. And can accomplish that reconciliation for you on your behalf. There is a power that defeats anger, vengeance, and injustice. Injustice, An ultimate authority. A just judge who has also defeated sin and death. A defender. The defense, therefore, and this is our good news, the defense, therefore, rests its case in Jesus. We are freed by Jesus Christ. We are freed by his defense. And in that, we are freed to have a restrained hand. We are freed to practice righteousness. We are freed to be agents of love. And we are invited to remember this at this freedom meal. This meal is a gift to us. It is a sign of what God has done and what God is doing in our lives. It is a seal of confidence on our future. At this table, all is reconciled. At this table, we meet Jesus Christ. The one who gives a royal peace. The peace not like the world gives, but the peace that surpasses all understanding. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the great reconciler. That you give us peace, that you free us to love. For you are our defender, whether we are weak or strong. Lord, you take us as we are. So, Lord Jesus, guide us with this meal into your freedom. 
guide us to become more and more knowledgeable of your love as your children. And Lord, even if we feel wounds as we approach this table, God, we, we hand over to you what needs to be healed. Trusting in your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, served his disciples this freedom meal. He took bread and he blessed and broke it. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.